Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Hacker Noon podcast. Today we are with Noonies nominee Nataraj Sindam. Nataraj is a Microsoft engineer, entrepreneur, and podcast creator, and he is nominated as Hacker Noon contributor of the year for business strategy. How's it going, Nataraj? Thanks very much for joining us today. Hey, Lamarck, it's going good. Uh, pleasure to be here with you today and uh, always happy to be part of anything Hacker Noon does. I'm excited to do this. Yeah, thanks very much. So I'm a, I'm a fan of yours, actually, and I've read your articles, but uh, some of our listeners today might not be so familiar with you. So could you please briefly tell us about your career history and how you ended up working at Microsoft? Uh, so describing any or um, identifying yourself as something is a little bit more tricky. Mm. Uh, but uh, uh, as a conventional wisdom goes, everyone identifies uh, themselves with their full-time job. So I'll identify myself with the full-time job I do, uh, which is I'm an engineer at Microsoft. And uh, I basically work on a, in Microsoft Azure team on developing uh, cloud applications. Cool. Uh, before that, uh, I worked for the healthcare software company called Epic Systems, and uh, I'm a graduate in computer science and mathematics. Uh, I'm also an entrepreneur and investor, and uh, full disclosure to the audience that I'm one of the uh, investors in HackerNoon's crowdfunding mm -hmm. campaign. So, yeah. So uh, before we uh, dive into that a bit, I'm quite interested. You said that. Uh, Conventionally, most people identify themselves with their full-time job. Um, how would you identify yourself other than that? What do you think is the better way or what way do you prefer to identify yourself? I, I think everyone uh, has a range of identities. Uh, mm. I mean, I would think of myself as a more of a generalist because uh, the term engineer is uh, very specific and yeah. at least, uh, uh, you know, uh, thought of as very specific to do uh, a specific kind of thing. But I, I like to think of myself as uh, wearing multiple hats because uh, uh, as I said, I am a creator. I think myself as a creator. Uh, mm -hmm. I like ideating new things. Uh, yes. I love the process of creating uh, something from nothing. So I look at writing even code as uh, creating from something. Uh, you know, That's today the most effective form of creating anything. Yeah. Um, so an artist will think of himself as, you know, creating something out of nothing through color. An engineer can think of it uh, using code and an investor can think of it using through capital. And uh, a product developer is uh, you thinking it in terms of developing a product. So the For core sure. of it, I think of myself as uh, someone who enjoys creating things. For sure. For sure. And um what a, for the writing side, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm not an engineer. We tend to identify ourselves via our full-time job just because it gives us a sense of authority and a sense of, um, you know, justification for what you're doing that you've, you've gotten somewhere in your life. And working for Microsoft, that's a huge accomplishment. Uh, for engineers, do you, do you kind of follow that same pattern where they identify themselves by the biggest company name they've worked for in the past? Uh, that's, that's a very fascinating question, right? Uh, yeah. I think I would, uh, split that question in, I would put that question in a different way. Uh, today, I think any career, you can do, look at it in two terms, either linear or nonlinear. Mm -hmm. 
what do I mean by that? So if you're a developer, you are, you know, you went to college for computer science, you did your own graduation and maybe you did a master's and yeah. then you joined a software company, you went through the interview loop and then you gained some couple of inter- uh, experience working with the you know, production code and then you move on to your next company because you've become a better engineer because of that experience and so on and so on. So even as a writer or, or whatever career that you see, uh, that you see around us, uh, it's basically this process of linearly jumping uh, and there's an assumed process, right? If you are a journalist, you work, uh, you know, editor room for mm-hmm. some time and then you, uh, you graduate onto doing bigger and better things. Uh, so there's always a linear version of it and there's a nonlinear version of it. And if you see greatest successes or greatest creations or greatest products, those always follow uh, a nonlinear uh, path uh, in this uh, linear trajectory. So yeah. uh, what do I mean by that is you often see like uh, most creative outcomes come from nonlinear paths. Yeah. Uh, most successful entrepreneurs are not uh, who go to the college and uh, follow a linear path. Yeah. I'm not saying one is good or one is bad, but it's a combination of both. And these nonlinear sure. effects, even as a journalist or writer yourself, if you your biggest accomplishment might seem as a non-linear thing, even though you are mm-hmm. doing something linear. 100%. Am I making sense? No, no, you're definitely making sense. Like we're, we're linear beings. So we just always tend to uh, put our lives in a linear form when we, whenever we tell a story. But I agree with you where the things that happen in your life, the biggest things probably aren't so linear when you look back at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thanks for that. Um, uh, so outside of Microsoft, then, what, what's one of the biggest projects you're working on now? Uh, I've, I've recently worked on a product uh, called uh, the Dosa Shop, which is an e-commerce uh, website. And I, I should say I'm a failed entrepreneur with that, <laughs> with that respect because we couldn't find a product market fit. Our original thesis was to serve the Indian community living in the U.S. and uh, in North America. Yeah. Uh, Turns out uh, they're not uh, the products that we actually put out there were not uh, being bought by Indians in the U.S. So right now we are wrapping up that project and probably and looking to find the next uh, side project that I want to work on. Cool. Uh, but apart from that, yeah, I've also done a podcast uh, where I break down business strategy of different sectors, like for example, food delivery. Uh, and we've had an episode on WeWork when, because while we were developing this podcast, WeWork was uh, in the midst of news and everyone was interested. And we, I wanted to give my take on uh, mm-hmm. what's uh, happening around WeWork and we've covered uh, different other topics. Cool. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't call yourself a failed entrepreneur just yet. I think uh, most of the successful ones, they never had a, a big hit idea in, in the first few few ideas, right? It's very rare where the first idea is the big hit idea. That's true. Uh, it's all. It's also a part of honing your skills. So uh, even I don't consider it as a failure. It's a very good learning lesson. And we learned a lot of lessons in terms of uh, social media marketing and uh, what is the right cost at which you can sell a product and uh, what cost uh, doesn't make sense to sell a product. Definitely. So there's a lot of learning lessons and we realized that the marketing spend that we are doing uh, doesn't make sense in the longer term. And then we decided to uh, change strategy. And right now we're figuring out in the middle whether to continue it or 
uh, maybe pivot to some different direction. Nice. Well, I wish you the best of luck in whatever direction you move in next. Okay. So, Nataraj, it's um, not that often where software engineers transition into writing, and you've been writing on Hacker Noon for a really long time. Um, could you tell us when you started writing and what's your, what, what your writing process sort of is? Um, yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I've always wanted to have a blog of mine. And I think around 2017, uh, Medium, which was really blowing up, and they made it really easy and clean for anyone to have blog. I mean, even though we have options like Blogger and uh, other platforms before with WordPress, et cetera, I never got to actually sit down. And even though I had the fantasy of writing it, uh, I never actually sat down and wrote anything. But in 2017, when Medium made it so easy, uh, I started writing drafts and eventually started publishing it. Uh, and around that time, I was also reading a lot. And uh, one thing I always tell anyone who wants to write is to read a lot. And I think that reading essentially uh, made me write more and more. And the medium was making it much easier to write. And they have really good editor and uh, it's just that the timing coincided very well with what I was interested in, what I was reading with, and I was getting yeah. some new thoughts and uh, around different things I was interested in. And uh, that's how I got started. Cool. And um, from Medium, how did you transition to Hacker Noon? Uh, so it's uh, in Medium, I was trying to uh, find publications uh, to publish my articles. And that's when I encountered... Uh, so I was just looking through what are the top uh, publications that are uh, really uh, making it on the top list uh, on mediums. And yeah. I found Hackernoon was, I think, in top three of them at the time I, I found Hackernoon. Cool. So uh, when I found them, yeah, I submitted one of my articles to them. And uh, I think after some, uh, after a couple of days, they published it. And since then, Whenever it made sense uh, for any blog post I've written, uh, I've <laughs> sent it to Hackathon. And one of the interesting things I found that also is the ability to which they were garnering audience because Hackathon, I remember, was actually uh, able to bring more audience to Medium than Medium was actually bringing to Hackathon page. Mm -hmm, for sure. And that also actually eventually led me to participate in their uh, crowdfunding campaign when they went away from Medium and started their own website. Yes, yes. So I'm sure everyone um, who's been following the story by now knows the reason, the main reason Hacker Noon left Medium is uh, we're quite against paywalls to read stories. Mm -hmm. And personally, as a writer, uh, I feel the same way. It's it's quite annoying for me when I see a cool headline, I click on it, then I see the, oh, you've reached your five-story limit this week sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. What's uh, your opinion on paywall systems? Not just on Medium. You can talk about other blogs that may have them. I mean, I think... Uh... There's no one star. I mean, I mean, there's no one solution to this problem, right? Because we are in this age where anyone can write anything. The yeah. problem we are encountering uh, as a society is, uh, I mean, how to differentiate between what is uh, a fact or not. Yeah. And paywall can solve that problem to an extent, but as we have seen, there's a counterintuitive fact that is flowing around for free. So yeah. how do you solve that? So 
I don't know the answer and I don't think anyone does yet. Uh, and it's a very complicated issue. But yeah, I mean, as, as a personal user, you are definitely annoyed with uh, having a paywall. But I think at yeah. some point we have to get used to the fact that we have to pay for content because mm-hmm. we are paying. I think this happened with media, uh, media in general, right? Like there yes. was a point of time you're watching uh, movies from torrents because there was no Netflix, right? There was no streaming service where it they, where they made it easy to access uh, yes. uh, content online. I think we need to get more comfortable. And personally, I am more inclined towards micro payments. So article-based payments. Uh, Interesting. Uh, than actually having a subscription because let's say I'm interested in a particular article. I want to pay for just that article uh, on New York Times or Washington Post uh, instead of paying for a subscription. But I also realized that that incurs you know instability in the business that they are running whether if you're new york times or washington post uh you have a staff you have you know your fixed cost variable costs and of course it is for them hard to manage but i think there is a version of payments that we can hit where uh i would argue that their paying customers would increase if they also introduce a micro payments option uh, let's say a one dollar an article or a yeah. article because I'm not a subscriber per se to uh, Washington Post, but now and then I encounter uh, an article or so which I'm really interested in, and then they ask me for ten dollars instead. Of, if they ask me for one dollars, and if the browser uh, payment system is very well integrated, uh, then I can see uh, myself paying for it. So, for example, yeah. like how Honey, the Chrome plugin, yeah. Uh, Operates today. I mean, imagine Honey facilitating uh, a pay micro payment option for New York Times or Washington Post, and I should just only pay for that article. I mean, yeah. the technology is there. It's just a matter of strategy, whether whether or not we want to do it. I agree. I agree. If if it gets as simple as uh, I get to click one button and give a dollar to this writer, I, I could see that taking off. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and in terms of my writing process. Uh, the way I think about uh, my writing process is for every article I write, uh, I have like eight drafts that I don't write, I never publish. So I actually have like hundred, about hundred of drafts that I never actually published. Wow. And uh, for each article, uh, the way I think of an article, so I, I'm a, a mathematics student and uh, I did master's in mathematics. Uh-huh. And when you do masters in mathematics, what you essentially end up doing is proving a lot of theorems. Yes. Uh, so you start with the hypothesis, you uh, take the hypothesis, uh, you, you have a bunch of axioms that you can use and you finally drive your point uh, through logical reasoning to a conclusion uh, and you prove your hypothesis. So my articles are mostly based on uh, a theorem structure. I always have a ending one-liner hypothesis that I want to get to and I am using certain axioms that I believe uh, make sense logically and I try to derive uh, to that one particular conclusion that I'm telling I'm trying to tell using that article so this is something is very fascinating to me how a theorem and an article look alike for me yes and they're proving theorems one of was one of my strong strengths uh, weirdly uh, uh, that uh, that turned out to be one of my strong since after doing maths, I realized that, okay, I'm really good at proving theorems. And mm-hmm. 
the way I think about writing is also like proving theorems. I think that's an incredibly interesting metaphor for the writing process. I've never heard anybody related to mathematics before, but the way that you said it, it's uh, perfect. I'd say, I'd say one of the, I'm a, obviously I'm an editor and I read a lot of, and a lot of stories. And one of the biggest problems is uh, the structure makes it really hard for the reader to follow what's going on. So if you think of it in a way of the scientific process where, or the mathematic process where you have a hypothesis, then you have to prove it. And then you have to come back at the end to what the hypothesis was and show how your proof actually proved it. That's a very straightforward way of a story. And that a lot of people, as we are linear creatures, would understand that a lot better. So that's a great uh, advice for any other Hackenoon writers listening. Maybe you should write your articles in a form of a proving like proving a mathematical theory like you said yeah but but i also believe uh, in the concept of flow where you're not uh, you know making the process very mathematical or you know uh, full of rules i think that sometimes also hindering because a lot of my uh, articles are like a burst of thought that came uh, in the middle of the night or sometime while i was driving and i just put it down and my first draft is pretty fast and then I keep uh, iterating over them and create multiple drafts and finally I publish things. So, but to get to that first draft, it's not always, uh, you know, based on a strictly mathematical approach. Sometimes you have to let it uh, go and uh, you just start writing. And uh, then again, you come back to, you know, draft it and edit it and give it a little bit more structure. And sure. then I think it use, uh, you can use different structures, but this is the one which really helps me. For sure, for sure. And interestingly, earlier you were talking about um, how we, the payment structure for content these days. And one of my favorite articles of yours uh, was about the freemium model. So you published this on Hacker Noon and it was called uh, the freemium model's reciprocation effect. I don't want you to go into too much detail just because uh, It'll take you a while to, to talk about the entire article, but could you briefly tell our readers, our listeners, what that one was about? Uh, so today, uh, freemium is pretty synonymous with subscriptions, right? Uh, we are in the world of subscriptions. We are subscribing everything, uh, Netflix, uh, yeah. to whatever you're watching, to whatever you're listening, to whatever you're working on, whether it's a software that you want to use, or whether it's Canva, or whether if you want to edit a podcast on Descript, you are basically subscribing. Yeah, but before we subscribe to any of those, uh, we actually uh, are given a free uh, version of the software to use without any charge. And this phenomenon has become main go-to-market strategies for all kinds of software services today. Yes, and I think there's a deep psychological effect why freemium models actually are very effective in acquiring customers. Uh, I mean, in any uh, line of product uh, and it is very deeply psychologically rooted and uh, this is something called as reciprocation effect. Uh, what it means essentially is, uh, let's say uh, I, uh, Nataraj, give Limark uh, mm -hmm. a gift, uh, right? And what it says, the reciprocation effect essentially says that uh, you feel indebted to me in some way yes. uh, to return that favor. So what happens in premium model is, uh, let's say when Netflix is giving us a one month or a two month free subscription, you're psychologically feeling an indebtedness uh, uh, towards Netflix as a company. 
And if you um, like the product, you are more likely to subscribe to it uh, on a, a, for a product which is giving you freemium versus for a product which doesn't give you freemium. Yes. And obviously, there, this is not just the one reason, but it is such a, a driving and such an uh, overtly uh, psychological reason that, and we see this effect in a lot of places. I mean, this is one of those... Uh, uh, psychological uh, shortcuts that we often take as human beings because yep. we develop these shortcuts over time, shortcuts over time which will help us uh, in your rapid decision. Uh, this also helps, you know, marketing folks and, you know, go-to-market theorists and customer acquisition teams to think about how can we use these psychological effects uh, to actually, you know, better acquire customers. And the idea for originally for this reciprocation effect uh, came from a book called uh, Influenced by Robert Caldini. And uh, I would suggest if anyone who's into product development or marketing, if anyone is curious about uh, psychology, um, they should read uh, Influenced by Robert Caldini. And yeah. uh, that's where the original idea came. And, uh, and that's when the aha moment came. Model is such a big hit. Yeah. And um there's also a business aspect to it now because freemium has become so commonplace that weirdly it's, it's more professional to have a freemium version than not to. And I think one of the reasons for that is if a company is confident enough in their product that it's really good and they're willing to give it away for free for, for a short period of time or whatever, it shows that they have so much confidence that either you're going to buy it after or you're going to keep using it somehow or you're going to pay for it in some form. Um, mm -hmm. oppositely, if you have a product, like you said, that wasn't freemium, people might be more reticent to even try it because you have, first you have to pay to try it. And if you don't like it in the end, you wasted your money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, definitely the advantage with freemium and I've uh, obviously pointed this in my article is that the customer can try the product first before paying. That's a big aspect because, uh, that's a must before the customer can make a decision. Yeah. But uh, obviously the psychological effect is also plays a significant role. Yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And the psychological effect I think is, is really strong. Like um, one of the examples you used in your article was Fortnite, which I, I played uh, way too much time on. And I think for the teenagers or even the adults that play Fortnite, what happens is after they played for a few months, they think, oh, I've played this game for a hundred hours for free. Normally, I would pay $80 for such a game. Why don't I pay $10 to buy this little skin for my character? And mm -hmm. they keep having that uh, psychological effect in their mind. And sooner or later, they ended up spending $200 on the game. Mm -hmm. So in, in some sense, freemium could get your company more money than you originally would giving the product away at a set cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I see this trend growing because uh, there's a slight difference in model, right? Like there's, there's an evolution in premium model itself. Like previously, let's say you take the example of Netflix, uh, you either after uh, uh, using your free service, you are, you are becoming a payment service or you're mm -hmm. not using the service. Yes. But there are side of the products which, uh, into which uh, Fortnite falls is where you have a free version of product you continuously use, yes. which is resulting in these micro transactions within the platform or the service, which is actually generating more, probably more, subs uh, more revenue than a subscription would actually generate. And exactly. I think Fortnite is a perfect example for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can also see this in uh, uh, 
Canva, uh, which is uh, you know making designing yeah. anything and everything so easy. They have the free version, but if you wanted to slightly differentiate your design and you know bring that extra edge to your design, you have to buy uh, the components uh, that make up the design, and then you feel like wondering why why do I buy five components? Instead, I pay ten dollars and take the premium version. So exactly, it is also a way to you know divert uh, or promote the premium version of your product.